بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد مجيب brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته one of the great scholars of Islam by the name of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah he was one day walking by the street and with him were some of his students and his students pointed out, they said, Ya Shaykh, Ya Shaykh, there's some people over here that are drinking alcohol. Let us go and prohibit the evil. So Ibn Taymiyyah and his students, he went to see who the people were that were drinking and it turned out that they were soldiers from the Tartar regime. They were soldiers from the Tartar regime. And Ibn Taymiyyah said, you know, let them be, let us continue on our way, let us continue on our way. And they said, Ya Shaykh, but isn't it our responsibility as students of knowledge to eradicate this evil that is happening in our community, that these people are drinking evil, it is haram, it's not allowed, and we need to reject this munkar. We need to, to stop this from happening. The name of Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he says, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon you. If we were to stop these people from drinking alcohol, what would they busy themselves with? The student said, we don't know, Ya Shaykh. He said, if we were to stop these people from drinking alcohol, they would busy themselves with killing the Muslims, raping the Muslim women, and you know, just causing a greater facade. This alcohol that they're drinking, at least it's preventing from committing that greater facade. So let them stay in their state of intoxication, for this is better for them. For this is better for them. And Ibn Taymiyyah and his students, they went on their way. The halakha is happening over here, guys. <laughs> it's not over there, it's over here. <laughs> and then they went on their way. And this is a very valuable lesson when it comes to enjoining good and forbidding evil. People have this, you know, um, I guess enthusiasm, particularly when they first start practicing, that any evil we see, you know, we have to go and eradicate this evil. So there's like a bar in their local community, young 18-year-old guy's like, you know what, I'm gonna go break all the beer bottles. <laughs> he goes in and he's like, you know, drinking is haram and they're like, who are you? <laughs> what does haram even mean? And they, you know, he tries to do whatever he can and he gets beaten up by the bouncer, he gets kicked out of the bar and you know, what ends up happening other than him being humiliated and you know, getting beaten up. Nothing actually comes out of it. So our discussion for tonight are what are the principles and laws that govern enjoining good and forbidding evil. And this all revolves around one basic hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. An Abi Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu qal, Samaitu Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul, Man ra'a minkum munkaran falyugayirhu biyadih. فَإِنْ لَمْ يَسْتَطِعْ فَبِلِسَانِهِ فَإِنْ لَمْ يَسْتَطِعْ فَبِقَلْبِهِ وَذَلِكَ أَضْعَفُ الْإِيمَانِ رواه مسلم On the authority of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu who said, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam say, whoever of you sees an evil must then change it with his hand. If he is unable to do so, then he must change it with his tongue. And if he is not able to do so, then he must change it with his heart. And that is the slightest effect of faith. That is the slightest effect of faith reported by Muslim. Reported by Muslim. So let us start off with the narrator of the hadith, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. We spoke about him two halaqas ago. Who can remind me who Abu Sa'id al-Khudri is? What was his real name? What was the name of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri? Who remembers? And I believe we have Tim Hortons tea. If you have, if you get the answer right, you'll get a cup of Tim Hortons tea, inshallah. Going once, going twice. Ayub, you know the answer to this? Even you don't know the answer to this? La ilaha illallah. No, Sa'ad ibn Malik. Sa'ad ibn Malik ibn Sinan. Very close though. His name was Sa'ad ibn Malik ibn Sinan. And he became very famous because in the battle of Uhud, he was a 14-year-old boy. And he comes to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, I want to come and fight in the battle. And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says, you're too young to fight. So what you can do is you can help out instead. And then thereafter, his father was actually fighting in the, in the battle of Uhud. And his father passed away in the battle of Uhud. And thereafter, Abu Sa'id, Sa'ad ibn Malik, he continued to fight in all of the expeditions. And what made him particularly unique was the fact that he was one of the few narrators that has narrated more than a thousand hadith from the Messenger of Allah Wasallam. He's one of the few narrators that has narrated more than a thousand hadith from the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's a very important name to know. So now general comments about this hadith. A general comment about this hadith is that this hadith, it, uh, it establishes a frame of mind that a believer should have towards evil, right? A believer is never meant to have a passive attitude towards evil. 
So if he sees an evil, it's meant to bring about some effect inside of him. Either he has the ability to make that change with his hand, then he should do so. If he's unable to, then he should speak out against it. And if he's unable to, then at the very least, he needs to hate it inside of his heart. Now particularly on this last point, Allah knows best if we'll be able to get to it in today's halaqa or not. But this concept of being desensitized to evil as you're constantly exposed to it. That's like a, a very, very rampant notion in our times. Because evil surrounds us so frequently, and we know that, look, there's nothing I can actually do about it, we naturally become desensitized to it. And this is something that's very dangerous and very, very unhealthy. And that's some of the, one of the main things I'd like to address ta'ala, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets, uh, grants us the tawfiq to do so. So starting off with the hadith itself, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, whoever amongst you sees an evil. Whoever amongst you sees an evil. Now, the first thing we want to discuss is this meant to be taken literally. That does this mean the only time we have to do, you know, enjoining good and forbidding evil is if we see, actually see the evil itself? Is this what is meant from this hadith? And the answer to that is obviously not. But if a person has a strong conviction, meaning that someone else tells him about it, or he sees it advertised somewhere, even if he doesn't see it himself, then if he has the ability to, he should follow the three steps. He should follow the three steps. So it doesn't literally mean, hey, just as long as I don't see the evil, then I'm not responsible for what happens in my community. That way people can just lock themselves inside of their houses, and you know what, they're not responsible for anything. It doesn't work like that. If you have knowledge about evil, then you have a responsibility towards it. Then you have a responsibility towards it. Number two, the second thing we want to understand is what is the understanding of munkar? What does munkar actually mean? Is munkar equivalent to sin or does it have a more general meaning to it? And the answer to that is that munkar has a more general meaning to it. So munkar is everything that is rejected and objectionable in the sharia. Everything that is rejected and objectionable in the sharia. Now who can tell me why munkar and ma'siyah? Munkar as the general concept of evil and sin are not one and the same. Who can give me an example of this? Why are they not one and the same? This requires a bit of thinking. Is it possible that someone is doing an act of munkar but is not sinful? Is that possible? It's not possible? No? Inshallah, we're going to learn something new today then. We're going to learn something new today. Out of ignorance. Fantastic. Okay. So someone's doing something and they don't know that it's actually haram or a munkar. Fantastic. What's another reason? Now he just established the, 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 the line for you. Out of necessity. Out of necessity. Fantastic. There's a third and obvious one as well. Yeah, there's no other way actually. So out of necessity. That's the same thing. He doesn't know about it, but what were you going to say? Sorry? Intention? intention? No, evil is still evil even if you don't have the intention behind it. But there's a third and obvious one. He forgets. He forgets? Okay, that's ignorance as well. But the third and obvious one. Who is the pen lifted from? From the young child, right? So if a young child is form of munkar, he's not sinful for it. He's not held accountable for it. So these are the key differentiations that munkar is the general concept of evil Whereas sin is dependent upon the type of individual and person it actually is. So let's just say you have a young child who's under the age of puberty. Islamically, they're not held accountable for their actions, but you see them drinking beer. You see them drinking beer, right? While this, may, this child may not be sinful for it, it is still an act of munkar that needs to be eradicated. It's still an act of munkar that needs to be eradicated. So that is why munkar and ma'asi are not generally the same. And munkar is more general, whereas ma'asi has a direct relationship to the type of individual that it is, to the type of individual that it is. A second point related to this is if there is a difference of opinion on a matter. If there is a difference of opinion on a matter. Actually, we'll leave this for, for a different time. I'll just share the narration with you. Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he said that one who drinks nabith, and we'll talk about what nabith is, is to be flogged. Although he is not considered an evildoer, he performs that act following the opinion of those scholars who say that it is permissible. So in the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, there is an opinion that states that if you were to ferment dates and water, you get this drink called nabith. You get this drink called nabith. It is a drink that doesn't have a full-on intoxicating effect, but it has a minor intoxicating effect. The majority of scholars, they consider it impermissible. Whereas the scholars of Kufa, where Imam Abu Hanifa was from, they actually considered it permissible. They actually considered it permissible. So based upon this, Imam Ahmad he's being asked that, you know, what if a person is drinking nabith, 
out of following another person's opinion? You know, is the, is the judge still supposed to rule against him? And the answer to this is yes, the judge is still supposed to rule against him, even though he believes that this opinion is, uh, you know, favorable. Because this is what he learned from his scholars. But the law of the land, it dictates other than that, right? The law of the land in Imam Ahmad's time, it had changed. It was no longer following Hanafi law at that time. So they said, according to that law, then he's meant to be, uh, you know, the, the punishment is meant to be established on him, even if he was ignorant, even if he was ignorant at, at that time. We get to a third discussion now. Who is this hadith actually addressing? The Prophet ﷺ said, whoever amongst you sees an evil. Who is it actually addressing? Certain commentators, they said that this hadith is only addressing the rulers and the scholars of Islam. That is only addressing the rulers and scholars of Islam. Why did they specify rulers and scholars? They said because those are the people that actually have authority. Those are the people that actually have authority. Now obviously this is talking about a time where both of these categories actually had the respect of their people, right? In our day and age, when you think about the average scholar, the average scholar has no relationship with his community, right? You go to a community like Saudi Arabia, you talk about major scholars, half of the people in the country will not know who this major scholar is. You'll walk in the street and no one knows who he is. So that relationship isn't actually there. And likewise, in terms of the rulers, we don't live in a time where people actually respect the rulers and actually love the rulers. But in fact, the vast majority of their times, they actually hate the rulers, right? So this is, while the books of fiqh will classically mention that, you know, this is who this hadith is referring to, it's not understood in its absolute sense. It's not understood in its absolute sense. But rather it's understood in the sense that anyone that ever will have authority has a responsibility towards change. Anyone that ever has, uh, has authority has a responsibility towards change. And I want to address some of the specific ones over here tonight. So the first one starting off with the parents. The parents have a responsibility towards their children. You know a lot of the times you'll find parents are very passive. So for example, if their kid is in the masjid, he's like breaking the shelves and destroying everything that is in the masjid. And the parents are like, ha 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 ha, you know, he's still a young kid, let him have a good time. But in reality, the kid doesn't know any better. Who knows better? It is the parent. So the parent is the one that is directly responsible for doing that, the encounter of that munkar. If your child is destroying something, he's not excused by the fact that he's a child because you're responsible for your child. So you're the one that's actually held accountable. So parents have to hold their children accountable as well. And this goes on a, uh, on a more, you know, greater level. So for example, if your children are watching things that they shouldn't be watching, they are listening to things that they shouldn't be listening to, they're enveloped in a culture that is not good for them, right? You are responsible as a parent. And you, this is something that you will be questioned about by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. كُلُّكُمْ رَعَيْنْ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ That all of you are shepherds and all of you will be questioned about your flocks. So it's very responsible that once you become parents, we accept the responsibility for our children. So we're responsible for what their eyes see, for what their ears hear, the type of friends that they hang around with, the type of books that they read. We should not be exposing them to evil because this is part of our responsibility of eradicating that evil. And as a parent, you are allowed taking the physical means. So for example, if your child has you know, a CD or a DVD that you know that they shouldn't be watching, there's nothing wrong with you taking that and breaking that DVD. At the end of the day, they are the child and you are the parent. You can't be afraid of your children, right? So you need to stand up to them and take that stance. You know, a lot of the times, parents become very, very passive. They're like, you know, if I rebuke my child, my child won't love me anymore. What you're forgetting is, what's not important from your child at this age is love. Your children will always love you, inshallah. But it is important that they respect you. And if you're not setting guidelines and you know, being consistent in those prohibitions, they're not going to respect you, they're going to run all over you. If you're having trouble you know, um, disciplining them at the age of 6 and 7, wait till you, they reach 13, 14 and 15. You know, they're going to ruin your life at that time. So from a very young age, you need to establish that authority that look, I am mom and dad. And I will tell you what is right and wrong and you need to listen and abide by these laws. And if you don't, then you know there are punishment and consequences. And those punishment and consequences, they need to be very clear and explicit and you need to be consistent in them. You can't pick and choose, you know what, I'm going to, uh, to, to punish my children now and not punishment the next time. It doesn't work like that. You have to be consistent in them because children are looking for that consistency. They are, you know, forces of habit. A second level that it applies to, and we'll get more personal over here is the husband over the wife. The husband over the wife. In Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the man in charge of the house. And this is naturally the way it works in most communities and societies as well. That the man is in charge of the house. 
Now, a lot of the times, you know, people think that why does the man get to be in charge of the house? You know, it isn't fair for the woman. From the perspective that he has authority, I would agree that, that, that you know what, this is the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided it and you have to deal with it. But what we fail to look at from the other side is that with authority also comes accountability. Right? So the more authority you have, the more accountability you have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's never an opportunity where an individual will have authority, but he doesn't have accountability to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now that you as a man, as a husband, have authority in the house, you have a greater level of responsibility as well. So if your wife is not covering properly, while she is sinful, you are sinful for that as well. It is your responsibility to make sure that she covers properly. When it comes time for salah, if you ever see your spouse being lackadaisical with their salah, it is your responsibility to make sure that they pray. So these are all obligations upon the man, that the husband needs to take this very, very seriously. And in the same sense, the general household itself, the man is responsible for what comes inside of the house. So if you notice that, you know, there's a lot of bad movies coming into your house, there's a lot of bad channels on the TV, music is being listened to in the house, all of these things, not only is it the individual that is held responsible that is doing them, but also the head of the household is responsible for those things. So these are things that we will be questioned about. And that is why it's very important that leaders take their responsibility very, very seriously. Right? Leadership, it's not meant to be taken as a fun, uh, as, you know, a fun opportunity or something that you can do part-time. But leadership is a frame of mind that you're constantly you know, engaging with. So you as a leader of the household need to make sure that everything in your house that comes in is you know, pure, is halal, and is, is conducive to an environment that is purely Islamic. Topic number four under this hadith. One of the greatest deceptions of shaitan is that shaitan makes people think, you know what? All of us do evil, right? There's not a single one of us that is not prone to doing some sort of evil. Every each and every one of us will fall into some sort of sin. Shaitan will come and make us think, you know what? You're sinful, you're sinful, you're sinful. What gives you the right to prevent other evil from committing sin? What gives you the right from preventing other people from committing sin? And this is one of the greatest traps of shaitan. And then not only is this a trap, but shaitan will come and whisper to you and actually give you proof for this trap. He's like, here's a verse from the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, why do you command the people with that which you do not do? Right? This is a sign of hypocrisy. How dare you, you know, prevent the people? Likewise, he comes with a hadith now. And the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that on the day of judgment, uh, sorry, in the hereafter, there will be a man whose intestines will be hanging out and he will be carrying them in his hands and he will be making a round just like the donkey makes its round around the windmill. And the people will come to this donkey, this man that's carrying his intestines like a donkey and walking around and they will say, didn't you enjoin us with good? And did you not forbid us from evil? And the man will respond, I used to command you with good, but I didn't do it myself. And I used to prohibit you from evil and I used to do it myself. And shaitan will come and plant these proofs in our head and he'll be like, you know what? Do not eradicate evil. This will make you a hypocrite. Do you really want to be from that individual in the hellfire in the hereafter? Now, how do we respond to shaitan at this time? Here are two authentic proofs. Go ahead. Um, we respond by saying that the thing he did wrong wasn't that he was commanding good and forbidding evil. The thing that he did wrong was that he wasn't doing it. Ahsant, fantastic. And that is the exact response. Shaitan will come and make you think that the thing that this individual was doing wrong was telling the people about the, the good and, and bad. But the actuality was, the reality was, that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is holding this person accountable for is not enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. It was the fact that they weren't doing these things themselves. The good came, they didn't do it. A bad came, they were doing it themselves. That, was, that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is censoring them for. And that, uh, that punishment, it got added to it once they started telling the people, once they started telling the people, that is when it became purely evil. So the source and origin of evil is that when we know good and we don't do it, and we know evil and we fall into it. That is the origin of evil over here. And then it's multiplied when we command the people with it. So now, let us bring it on a practical level. There's a man, he has a problem with alcohol. Okay, he has this addiction to alcohol. He can't, you know, do anything about it. He's tried his best. And then one day, he sees his young son drinking alcohol. Should he stop him? And the answer is obviously yes. 
Just because the man himself is an alcoholic and he has a problem, it doesn't mean he lets his son go and say, you know what son, go do whatever you want. I'm an alcoholic myself, I have no right to tell you this. This is not right. It, I mean, logically speaking, it doesn't make sense. Just because one person's life has become destroyed, it doesn't mean another person's life should become destroyed as well, just because we fall into that, to that shortcoming. So in every single situation, you want to assess the, uh, the situation. And that as long as you are making an effort to change and making an effort to become a better person, there's nothing wrong with enjoining good and forbidding evil. So you yourself might be lackadaisical with your prayer, but when prayer time comes, then you, the people need to pray, right? Try yourself to pray, tell your children to pray, tell your wife to pray. Even though you may have shortcomings yourself from time to time where you may not pray, it is a communal obligation at that time to encourage one another to pray, right? So just because someone falls into evil themselves, it shouldn't prevent them from uh, enjoining good and forbidding evil at that time. So now when it comes to enjoining good and forbidding evil, there's actually four different obligations. There's actually four different obligations upon the individual themselves. And these four different obligations should not prevent from uh, a person from enforcing that obligation. So those four obligations. Number one, he must order himself with good. And number two, he must prevent himself from evil. Number three, he must order others to do good. And number four, he must prevent others from doing evil. So these are the four obligations when it comes to enjoining good and forbidding evil. And just because a person is falling short in one of the first two, it doesn't mean that he multiplies his sin by not doing the other three, by not doing the other three. So as many of these obligations as you can do, you should be doing them. And keep working and striving towards becoming better. St keep working and striving towards becoming better. Now, we get to the part of the hadith. If he sees an evil, then he must change it with his hand. He must change it with his hand. Starting off with this section of the hadith, we want to understand over here, what is the objective of the sharia? Is the objective of the sharia to take this hadith literally and say, the very first thing that you need to do is change it with your hand? Or is the objective of the sharia the eradication of evil? The objective of the sharia, as we learned at the very beginning, is the eradication of evil. And the greatest evil needs to be eradicated first before the lesser evil can be eradicated, right? So the goal over here is even though the Messenger of Allah وسلم, stated that you need to change it with your hand first, if you can change that evil without using your hand, then that is something that is permissible. Because the goal here is not the usage of the hand to eradicate the evil, the goal here is the eradication of evil within of itself. Number two, what is the ruling on an-nahi an al-munkar? What is the ruling on an individual doing uh, forbidding of evil? This is a communal obligation. It is a fard kifaya. What does fard kifaya mean? Fard kifaya means that if one person in the community is eradicating the evil, then everyone is not held accountable at that time. However, if no one in the community is eradicating evil, then the whole community is sinful. Then the whole community is sinful. And this is the obligation that we have towards eradicating evil. And this is something to take very, very seriously in our times that you know, coming back to that point of becoming desensitized, when an individual becomes desensitized, his ambition uh, towards eradicating evil, it disappears altogether. And we need to understand that as a community, it is very possible if we have the ability and opportunity to eradicate evils in our community, yet none of us do anything about it, then the whole community is responsible for it. Then the whole community is responsible for it. So let me give you a practical example. Practical example, you have um, a Muslim community. What's like a heavily populated Muslim community in Calgary? Can anyone give me an example? Uh, a community that's heavily populated with Muslims. Northeast. Northeast is like a quadrant. I need like a... Rundlehorn. What's it called? Whitehorn or Randallhorn. Okay, heavily populated with Muslims, that area is. And then an individual comes and says, you know what, I'm going to set up a bar over here. Shaitan comes at that time, he tells the Muslims, he's like, look, some of you don't even have your immigration papers, don't speak out about it. Others of you, you know what, you're weak, you're miskeen, you're a minority in Canada, you know, you're just going to cause problems for yourself. That is the attitude that Shaitan comes and, you know, is, uh, implants in our heads so that we don't take any action. Now in this situation, no one is telling you you have to go burn down a building or, or anything like that. No one says that. But all we're saying is that, Living in a, a district that is heavily Muslim populated, you have a voice at that time. There is strength in numbers. 
So you start up a petition saying, look, we don't want a bar in our locality. We don't want our children exposed to this. We don't want this immoral behavior in our community. So just by signing a petition and starting up a petition in your community, this can go a long way. You have nothing to be afraid of at that time, right? It just requires a little bit of effort. Now what, is free, what, should, what people should be afraid of at that time is what if we as a Muslim community stay silent while we have the ability to do something about it? What will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala think of us then? Right? That is what one should actually be afraid of. So that is an example of the communal obligation and how people need to be creative in eradicating evil and how people need to be creative in eradicating evil. Number two, when it talks about the changing of the evil uh, of the, with the hand. There's two concepts. One is changing evil and number two is forbidding evil. One is changing evil and number two is forbidding evil. Forbidding evil is the general concept. Forbidding evil is the general concept. The specific concept is the changing of evil. So here the Messenger of Allah is not talking about forbidding evil, because forbidding evil can be done with any of the three. But the changing of evil, then the first way that evil needs to be changed is through the hand. The first way that evil needs to be changed is with through the hand. And an example of this is that if someone is drinking alcohol in your family, there's nothing wrong Islamically with you taking that alcohol and breaking the, the, the bottle or breaking the glass. Someone has, you know, drugs. There's nothing wrong with taking the drugs and flushing it down the toilet. All of these things are done physically with the hand, right? And this is part of the Islamic responsibility with it. And you'll see this like many times in the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the prophets, they took, you know, physical capability into their hands. You have the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam. His father is an idol maker. His community is worshipping idols. What does Ibrahim alayhi salam do? He actually breaks those idols himself. You see the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that when he conquered Mecca, what's one of the first things that he does after it's conquered is that he physically destroys all of the idols in the Kaaba. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he establishes his rulership in Medina. What is one of the first things that he does? He commands Ali radiallahu anhu to go and destroy all of the idols, erase all of the images, and if there's any graves that are, are like extremely high, that those graves should be leveled, right? So all of this is physical change that is taking place. So in terms of the changing of evil, then the first step that is taken in changing evil, it is done with the hand. It is done with the hand. Now, someone may say, in terms of Islamic accountability, right? In terms of Islamic accountability, not in terms of you know, Western secular law accountability, if you break someone else's property, aren't you liable for that property? From an Islamic perspective, things that are conducive to sin, there is no guarantee on them. There is no guarantee on them. So Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he was asked about an individual, a son who went and broke his mother's flute. Who went and broke his mother's flute. Is he responsible for replacing that, fru that flute or giving her the money? And Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he said no. The son is not responsible for um, the, the payment of the flute or replacing that flute. So this, those things that bring about sin in a community from an Islamic perspective, there is no guarantee upon them. There is no guarantee upon them. JazakAllah khair. There is no guarantee upon them. Now obviously in Western law, you have to be a bit more uh, you know, uh, cognitive of that fact. That those things are guaranteed and you will be held accountable for those things in Western law. So now, let us talk about the conditions that need to be met in order for things to be changed by the hand. What conditions need to be met? And the very fact that there are conditions that need to be met, what does that teach us? When something has conditions that need to be met, what is this going to teach us? Who can tell me? Power and authority. I need something more general than that. Go ahead. Stop and think. Actually, that's one of the conditions that need to be done. Evil? That's good. That's fantastic. We're doing what Allah commanded us. But the fact that there's conditions, it teaches us that it's not meant for everyone. Right? Eradicating evil is not meant for everyone. So everyone may think that, you know what, I am capable of doing this. And the reality of that is, no, that's not true. Make sure you're fulfilling the conditions of eradicating evil first, and then go ahead and do it. Condition number one for eradicating evil is that the intention needs to be pure. And particularly when eradicating evil with the hand, this is very, very important. A lot of the times, we will use our own personal vendettas against other people, against other groups, against organi other organizations to eradicate evil. 
And at that time, when the intention is, is impure and is corrupt, the action that comes about from an impure and corrupt intention is going to be a corrupt action as well. So the intention needs to be pure. Number two, he must have you know, knowledge of the Sharia when it comes to assessing levels of evil. When it comes to le assessing levels of evil. Eradicating one evil cannot bring about a greater evil. Eradicating one evil cannot bring about a greater evil. So for example, you do something and you end up in prison for life or you end up dead. This is not what the Sharia wants from you, right? So you cannot embark upon eradicating evil and a greater level of evil is brought into play. So you have to have knowledge of the levels and degrees that the Sharia looks at uh, evil. Number three, is that you have to make certain that the evil is actually there. You have to make certain that the evil is actually there. A lot of the times people will whisper, people will gossip, people will spread rumors, and they're like, you know what, such and such is happening. And a person gets you know, emotionally riled up, and they're like, let's go eradicate this evil. But then they go and cause destruction when that evil wasn't actually even there, when that evil wasn't actually over there. And this goes back to the brother's point that, you know, think first and then act. Don't act without thinking. Number four, a person may not go beyond what is permissible. A person may not go beyond what is permissible. So a father, he sees his son watching something that he shouldn't be watching. So the father, he takes the computer and he just destroys the computer, right? He thinks to himself, you know, I'm doing Nahiyan al-Munkar. All you had to do is, if it was on a USB stick, you break the USB stick. If it was on a disk, you break the disk. If it's a file on the computer, you just erase the file, right? So you're not allowed going beyond what is permissible. So even the level of Inkar al-Munkar, it needs to be at the level of the evil itself. It needs to be at the level of the evil itself. So you need to make sure that you're not going beyond those grounds. And number five, is that he should personally remove the evil if he has the ability or right to do so. If not, he should seek someone's help and assistance. So this concept of, you know what, I need to do it myself, is not necessarily true. Sometimes you may not be able to do it, but you know someone that is able to do it. So at that time, you call the person that is able to do it. So you see someone being mugged, and you know what, you're like a, a skinny little guy, you don't run very fast, you're not very strong. Whereas the guy that's robbing, not only does he have a weapon, but he's like this big muscular guy and he's like a football player, right? He runs like he's a truck. So you trying to go and eradicate evil at that time with your hand is going to be foolish and stupid, right? At that time, call for help, call the police, call someone that is able to do something. But to sit there as a bystander and do nothing about it, you know, this is, 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 is a huge problem. And subhanAllah, I was telling this to uh, Abdullah, but you know, recently uh, I was in a situation where there was a group of Muslims just watching a guy getting beaten up. Right, they were just watching, he was a, a drunk individual getting beaten up by, by four other people. And Muslims are, are just standing there the whole time. And in fact, you know, what was even more sad was that, you know, someone took out their phone and was like, let me record this guy getting beaten up. And it's like, these are like the problems in our society. That, you know, we've made entertainment out of things that we're meant to be eradicating from the community, right? So as Muslims, you can't just be a bystander. If something evil is happening, some action needs to be taken. Either you're trying to do it yourself, you're not able to do it, then you call someone that is able to do it. You call someone that is able to do it. Now the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he goes on to say, if he is not able to do so, if he is not able to do so. So when would a person not be able to do so? A person disqualifies himself from changing, from changing and eradicating evil due to two conditions. Number one is physical and number two is spiritual and knowledge based. So in terms of physical, you'll want to look at, will this bring any physical harm to me if I eradicate this evil? And if the answer is yes, that it is a physical harm that will take place, then you shouldn't uh, you know, go and eradicate that evil. It's very important to protect yourself in that situation and don't embark upon a situation where you will be harmed. Don't embark upon a situation where you know for sure where you will be harmed. Number two is having knowledge and that spiritual level. Having knowledge and that spiritual insight rather. In that situation, before you can actually forbid evil, then you need to have knowledge, right? You need to have that spiritual enlightenment as to why you're doing it. And only then is a person actually capable of it. Only then is a person capable of it. And we're going to go through eight case scenarios, inshallah, and then we'll conclude over there, bithinahi ta'ala, and we'll do the, the second part of the hadith on Wednesday, inshallah. So case scenario number one. 
The person believes he can change the evil with his hand and he fears no harm for himself, but changing the evil will lead to a greater evil. So do you guys understand this scenario? He's changing it with his hand, he fears no harm for himself, but the evil will lead to a greater evil. Should he eradicate evil at this time? No, the answer is no. He should not embark upon this. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, uh, uh, this goes back to the statement, uh, to the story of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah about eradicating evil, right? If he stopped those soldiers from drinking alcohol, they would have killed other Muslims, they would have raped the Muslim women, they would have, you know, done terrible other things. At that time, certain evil should not be eradicated because the evil that's going to come out is even greater. Um, there's a, a nice story of, by Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah. Ibn al-Qayyim stated that if a person saw impious and wicked people gambling, it would not be wise to stop them from doing so unless the person takes them to an act which is more beloved to Allah than the act that they were performing. Otherwise, it will leave them alone uh, uh, as the current evil they are performing is much less than what they usually do. So for example, you see gangsters and thugs, you know, they're wasting their time gambling. Let them be busy with their gambling as long as they're not harming the, phys the people physically at that time. They're not robbing people, they're not killing people. This is what Ibn al-Qaim is trying to say. That one evil should not be eradicated at the expense of a greater evil. And if, and this is a very important point over here, that particularly when it comes to you know, educating the Muslim community, is that we're very easy to point out what is haram, but we don't want to provide alternatives. And Ibn, Ibn al-Qayyim this is what he's saying, that if you don't provide people with alternatives, this will actually bring about a greater evil. So whenever you perform the eradication of evil, also make sure that you have an alternative to it as well. So your children are doing things they shouldn't do, then get them in a situation where they're doing things that they should be doing, right? Always have an, always have an alternative, always have an alternative. Case scenario number two. The person can stop the evil with his hand with no fear of harm, believing that it would result in an equivalent evil. So what does he do then? He should still do it or should he do it? Fantastic. How about, do we have another opinion? Anyone saying that, he, you know what, he should eradicate the evil. Because this is part of his responsibility. No one agrees with that? So let me reread the, the scenario for you. The person can stop the evil with his hand with no fear of harm, but believing that it would result in an equivalent amount of evil. Who's going to give me an answer to this? I mean, most things in life are like that, right? You believe that this will happen, and you're not sure of the actual outcome until it happens itself. Over here, the scholars actually said that this is up to the ijtihad of the person. Right? It is up to the person to, to deduce for himself that will it truly create an equal amount of evil? And Ibn Taymiyyah and Imam al-Ghazali, when this scenario is presented to them, they said the vast case scenario, the vast majority of scenarios, the evil will always be greater or less. Very, very extremely rarely will the evil actually be of the same level. Right? Very rarely will that happen. So this case scenario, in fact, may not even be accurate. But they said at he over here, the person is to make ijtihad, that he should try to judge and deduce for himself what is going to happen. And it's very, very rare that the evil will be uh, at that same level, but is usually greater or less than. Case scenario number three, the person does not have the knowledge to recognize what is truly an evil. What should he do at that time? At that time, he does not do anything at all. Rather, he should go and learn. To take action without knowledge is very, very dangerous. And this is why the scholars, they have said, to have a little bit of knowledge is something that is very, very dangerous. When people get a little bit of knowledge without context, without proper understanding, that is when they do actions that are very detrimental and very harmful. And we were seeing, the, you know, we're living, our communities are living examples of this. People get a little bit of knowledge and they take grave action towards it, but that's not the action that's meant to be taken. That's not the action that is meant to be taken. So the first step for those people is that they should go and seek knowledge and then learn to act at that time. Case scenario number four. The person can remove the evil without any resultant evil and the only harm that he fears is verbal abuse. The only harm that he fears is verbal abuse. Should he go ahead and eradicate that evil? Yes, yes he should. Because the verbal abuse in the eyes of the Sharia as painful as it, as it may be, you know, it, it's not valid to, to, to prevent you from eradicating that evil. You know, um, what's that thing that we used to say as kids? 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? This is something where we're taught as kids. And you apply this over here, that as long as they're not throwing sticks and stones at you, let them call you all the names that, that they want, right? But you should uh, eradicate that evil, even if you get verbal abuse. Number five, the person has the physical ability to act, but he believes he will not be able to remove the evil, and he expects he will be harmed to do so if he tries. So there are two things happening over here. Number one, he believes that he will not be able to remove that evil, and he also expects he will be harmed if he tries to do so. In this situation, very clear answer, he does not try to eradicate that evil. Because number one, your belief is telling you, look, you're not going to be able to change it anyways, so don't try to change it, right? And on top of that, you might be harmed as well. It's better not to change it. Number six, the person can stop or lessen the evil and he fears no harm or resultant evil. So in this situation, if you're able to stop it or lessen it, then this is what you should do, particularly if you're not fearing anything. Number seven, the person believes that he is not going to be able to stop or lessen the evil and he also fears no harm if he does act to stop the evil. And I think this is a crucial one. So let me repeat it. The person believes that he is not going to be able to stop or lessen the evil, and he also fears no harm if he does act to stop the evil. What should he do in that situation? Sorry? Raise your hand if you have an answer, please, because I didn't know. Go ahead, our brother in the back. Yeah. He should try? Okay. Uncle, what are you going to say? There's no benefit there? Ayub, what are you saying? Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And again, the scholars differed over here. That if you, know, if you can't physically do anything, does that mean you do nothing at all? And the answer to that is, there's two elements to this. One is the act of changing the evil. And number two is the accountability in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Those are two things that should not be confused. That just because you don't have the ability to change something, it doesn't mean that you don't have any accountability in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us an example of a people that you know, they were like, why are you speaking out against this evil when you know these people aren't going to change, right? These people responded by saying in the Quran that we're doing it so that we won't have accountability in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that we will not have accountability in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So over here, the point is that yes, you may physically not be able to do something, but that should not prevent you from educating the people and speaking out against it. That should not prevent you from educating the people and speaking out against it. And then the last uh, case scenario is the person believes he can remove or lessen the evil, but he knows that harm will come to him. He knows that harm will come to him. And over here, what the scholars have said is that harm, that possible harm needs to be assessed, right? So if it's a great harm, then definitely it should not, you, you should not embark upon this whatsoever. However, if it's a little harm that you can bear, then this is up to you if you're willing to bear that harm or not. Now what does the Sharia actually say about this? The Sharia actually says that if you were to be sincere and you were killed in that manner and your intention was not to be killed, then in fact this is the death of a Shaheed. This is considered the death of a Shaheed. And any harm that comes to you, even if you didn't know about that harm was going to come, then inshallah you will be rewarded for that harm. But one cannot intentionally put himself in a situation where he will be harmed. So if you know that you will definitely be harmed, you can't go in that situation. But if you know that you might be harmed, you might not be harmed, you don't know the level of that harm, then over there you may want to assess the situation and your level of tolerance. But understand that any harm that does come your way, then inshallah you are compensated for it with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you were to die in that situation, then you would be considered a shaheed. If you were to die in that situation, then you would be considered a shaheed. Do you guys want to continue? Five more pages? Can we continue for five more pages? Because usually I stop at nine o'clock, but I'd like to do these five more pages, inshallah, and then we can stop. Then the second part of the hadith, the Messenger of Allah he goes on to say, then he must change it with his tongue. Then he must change it with his tongue. And change uh, uh, with the tongue is of two types. The first type is where you actually educate the people directly. You tell them this is haram, this should not be done, this is why you shouldn't be doing it. That is, you know, one level of eradicating evil with the tongue. The second level of, e uh, of eradicating evil with the tongue is calling for help, right? So in that situation where that person is being robbed, you can't do anything about it. It doesn't mean you stay silent, but rather you call the police, you call for help at that time. And that is how you eradicate evil. Now when it comes to the steps of eradicating evil with the tongue, 
there's actually guidelines that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, teaches us uh, in terms of eradicating evil. Number one, the first step that should be taken is eradicate evil indirectly with the tongue. So for example, you see someone doing something wrong, you shouldn't publicly announce, you know, oh so-and-so, you know, you're doing something wrong, stop doing this wrong. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he wouldn't do that. But rather he would publicly address the people and he says, you know what, there is a group of people, you know, why would they do X, Y, and Z? Why would they do X, Y, and Z? And subhanAllah, this is like a funny story from, uh, from my days in college. Uh, we had a, a very like emotional khatib. And I remember one of the khutbas, and he's like, you know, brother X, Y, Z, he was sitting with a girl on the bench. You know, how could he do something like this? So that's like public humiliation of an individual in the khutbah. And the brother's like sitting right there. And it's like, you know, remember how what happened with, you know, everyone, something's happening at the door, everyone looked at the door. It's like everyone forgot about the khatib, and they're just focusing on this brother now. <laughs> and you know, at that time, and obviously the khatib was very well intended. He thought, you know what, this is what the sharia wants me to do, is like to publicly humiliate him. But the, what Islam calls for is an indirect approach first. And if that indirect approach doesn't work, then you take a direct approach. Then you take a direct approach. So step number two is when you take that direct approach, is you use gentleness and softness in your direct approach. And this cannot be emphasized enough. That a lot of the times when people start to take that direct approach, it's very harsh, very like condescending. That you know, you're going to the hellfire, you know, if you, if you don't stop. That is not the approach that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught the prophets and messengers. In fact, when you look at the, one of the very first commandments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives Musa alayhi salam and Harun, He says, That say, that you know, say to him a very soft and kind word to who? To Fir'aun. Say to Fir'aun a very soft and kind word in hopes that he will reflect or that he may start to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So the very first approach, it needs to be soft. And this is the foundation in da'wah. That our foundation in da'wah is not based upon harshness. It is based upon soft and gentleness, right? The Messenger of Allah he tells us that gentleness is not instilled in anything except that it beautifies it. And it's not taken away from anything except that it makes it ugly. And honestly, this is what we've seen that is happening with da'wah, that when da'wah became harsh, the da'wah became very, very ugly. People didn't want anything to do with Islam, right? They're like, why would we want this faith when it's all about harshness? But in reality, our religion is based upon gentleness and softness, right? And that's what we need to preach to the people. That is what we need to preach to the people. So now, a question may arise. When are we allowed to use harshness? Are there any times that we're allowed to use harshness? And the scholars, they looked at the seerah and they came up with three times where it is justified to use harshness. So they're not saying that you have to use harshness, but they said in these three cases, it would be justified. Meaning so that the foundation is still gentleness, but at certain times, harshness is justified. The first time it is justified is when the crime is against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. When the crime is against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. So any of those punishments that require a had punishment, that is a crime against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At that time it is justified to be harsh. And we saw this in the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when um, a, a noble woman, she was caught stealing from the people. She was caught stealing from the people. So they came and spoke to Osama ibn Zayd and they said, Ya Osama, you know what, you're very beloved to the Prophet Please intercede, you know, for us in this matter. The Prophet loves you a lot. You know, let this woman go. When Osama ibn Zayd came to the Prophet the Prophet he got very, very angry. He's like, are you trying to intercede in one of the hududs from the hudud of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He says, That by Allah, if even it was Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad وسلم, that did this, I would have chopped off her head. And this shows her, this shows us as a community that there's no sense of favoritism. It's not about, you know, my family, my tribe, my nation, my ethnicity. But when it comes to the punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then a harsh approach can be taken by the tongue. A harsh approach can be taken by the tongue. Right? So when it comes to the punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is justified. Number two, is when an individual or a group of people, they mock Islam, they mock Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they mock the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, at that time it would be justified to take a harsh approach. 
Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this deen, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they're more beloved to us than our own mother, right? And if anyone says anything about our mother, you know, we get extremely upset. So just like we will get upset at that time, we are justified to get upset at that time as well. We're justified to get at that, uh, upset at that time as well. And the third time that they mention that it is justified to become harsh is if the person is one who should know better or from whom one would expect better and then at that time one may resort to harshness. So for example, you've told this brother softly time and time again, right? Like a thousand times have gone by, you've been very, very soft with them. Then that last time, you know what? Harshness may be justified. Some people, they don't listen to gentleness. They don't listen to softness. And they will only respond to harshness. So at that time, it may be justified. At that time, it may be justified. So now, this only leaves us with the last portion of the hadith, but there's a lot of deep understanding in the last portion of the hadith, which will take us some time, which I don't want to delve into. But I'll just leave you with one quote from Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu to give it perspective for the next halaqa. He says, soon those who live amongst you will see evil and he will not be able to do anything about it other than to have Allah know that he hates it. Other than to have Allah know that he hates it. And subhanAllah, this was said by Abdullah bin Mas'ud you know, 1400 years ago, subhanAllah. And it's as if he's speaking about our time right now. That we have nothing to do, uh, you know, in, in terms of changing that evil, except that we let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala know that, oh Allah, we're not content and happy with this evil. Inshallah, on Wednesday's halaqa, we'll continue and finish off this hadith, as well as start with hadith number 35, in terms of what does Islamic brotherhood look like. That will be in hadith number 35. We'll open up the floor for questions and answers, inshallah, if you guys have any questions. Ayub, anything? Okay, so when you're talking about the situation where someone won't be harmed, but he's not sure. Yeah. Uh, but he feels that the evil won't go away. Anyway, then you drop the ayah, uh, Lima Ta'iduna, how would you, you give advice to people? Right. That are not punish or no harm. Right. Uh, and then with their Lord, yeah. and perhaps they might yeah. have taqwa. Right. So I looked at when they heard that, you know, they did think that would be useless. They thought that perhaps... I mean, of course, there's always a chance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide a people. But it's like, you know, you've tried your utmost best and nothing has worked with them. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you should ever lose hope in people, right? That, that's the key point. Yeah, you, you can keep on trying, but you may want to put your efforts elsewhere, okay. right? Exactly, exactly. That, so that's what's being said over here. So there's no case that is absolutely lost. And the only example we know is, you know, either if someone's dead or Iblis, you know, those are the only two examples. For everyone else, there's always hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide them. But what is being said over here is, you can either spend your time with people that don't want to listen to you, or you can spend your time with people that actually are willing to learn. It's more productive to spend your time with people that are willing to learn than to constantly spend your time with people that are literally like, you know, brick walls that don't want anything to do with you. Wallahu a'lam. Any other questions? Uh, this, uh, the forbidding the evil. Yes. Uh, did, uh, did you are applicable to our prophets too? This theology. In what sense? What, what you told us. Yes. Did you are applicable to our prophet because the, he has a life Right. I mean, see, that's like one of the beautiful things about being a prophet is that while you're always in danger, you're always having like a million malaika, you know, there to protect you as well. So you're like guaranteed Allah's protection. And this is, I think, a very valuable lesson that when a person establishes, you know, the, the role of. Uh, you know, someone that eradicates evil, he's an imam, he's like a scholar of a community. He has that higher level of accountability. And you need to understand that, yes, you will be threatened, things will happen. But at the end of the day, nothing will happen by, except by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No one can harm you except by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So our faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to be greater than our fear of the people. Subhanallah. So, Inshallah, they died a death of a shaheed. That, uh, any, any of course. So Inshallah, we, we pray that they're accepted as shaheed. Go ahead. Uh, is it permissible to postpone a criminal 
in situations where I think that we can do it, but it's better to go for reform than to immediately. So rather than eradicating one evil, you're trying to overhaul the whole system itself. And I believe if that is actually doable, then yes, that is a smarter approach to take. That you don't, you know, engage in small battles if you're preparing for a bigger war, right? And in this situation, I believe that would be the case. If you truly believe that reform is possible, then reform is something greater than eradicating a small evil. Eradicating a small evil is only going to bring about a small amount of good, a small amount of good. Whereas that total reform, then obviously that's something that is good. But obviously this is something that needs to be initiated with the advice of the people of knowledge, right? There, you shouldn't just have blind activism. And that's what we see a lot of the times, blind activism, it leads to people dying, people being imprisoned, and no change actually being brought about. Whereas activism that has knowledge base, base, a knowledge basis, then that, is an, uh, then that is a change that will actually be brought about. And that's what we're homing for. There's a knowledge-based change rather than just blind activism. Wallahu alam. Last two, three questions, inshallah. Go ahead, you. Yeah. And you see him drinking or something. He doesn't believe in God. Right. Then do we have a relation drink? Do we start by saying they believe in God first and then after they believe Fantastic. Very good question. So you have a non believer, he's drinking alcohol. Should we tell him not to drink alcohol? So this answer has three levels to it. Level number one is are you living in a Muslim com community and society where alcohol is actually forbidden? So if that is the case where you live in a, an Islamic society, a Muslim community, where alcohol is actually forbidden, then yes, you have the responsibility of making sure that he doesn't drink. That's number one. Number two is what if you don't live in a Muslim community and society, then what did you do at that time? In that situation, there's two things that need to be understood. Number one is your act of generosity towards mankind. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited alcohol due to the evil and harm that is in it, right? So over here, even though this person may not believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this person is still harming himself, right? He's losing his mental faculties and it wouldn't be right as a human being that you let someone do that intentionally. So if you have the ability to speak to them, the humane thing is that tell them, look, you don't say this is haram, because he doesn't care about haram. But you come with the approach that, you know what, this isn't good for your mind, it isn't good for your liver and kidneys, it's not good for the decisions that you're going to make, X, Y, Z, and this is the responsibility that you have. Number three, is that, this is like, you know, uh, an usul al-fiqh issue, that are the kuffar actually muqatibun bil furu' al-shari'ah, that are they actually, you know, obliged with the uh, secondary issues of the sharia, and the conclusion that, at least for what I studied, is that they are obliged with the furu' of the sharia, but only after they take their shahada. So this should be like an ideal opportunity to, to, to give da'wah to the person, hey, did you know that in Islam, alcohol is haram, because it wants to protect, you know, mental faculties, it wants to protect decisions, you know, and all these other things, right? So that might be a good opportunity to make da'wah as well. Wallahu ta'ala anam. Our brother here, go ahead. Yeah. So what did you have in mind? <laughs> and then that's it? Okay, so with a roommate, you don't really actually have much authority because you guys are joint partners in an apartment, right? So there's no real authority one over the other. So in this situation, the best that you can do is, you know, create an environment that is conducive to Salah. So for example, you have an Adhan clock that blasts extremely loud, right? Inshallah, he's gonna wake up for Fajr. If he decides not to, that, like, that's like hit between him and him. You know, if you ever have friends over, you guys are praying in Jama'ah, you know, you can tell your roommate can say, you know what, come and pray with us, you know, we can pray together. Number three, I've always found that if you bring a social aspect to religion, that always works a lot better. So telling people come pray with us, that doesn't work well. But say, hey, look, you know, we brought over some food, why don't you come eat with us? Then while you're eating or before the food is served, you're like, hey, you know what, it's going to be a little while before the food's ready, why don't we pray Shah before the food's ready? And in that situation, this guy's like, I want my food, but if I don't pray Shah with them, I'm not going to get it. You know, that'd be like a good opportunity. So you can be very creative with that. And, and from experience, you know what, Speaking down to people, being harsh with them, it never works. You know, at the end, we, we might end up feeling good, but that feeling good is like a deception from shaitan. Because that goal wasn't achieved and you have nothing to feel good about at, at that time. <coughs> Allahu alam. And our last question, who was the last question? You, yes. Brother, what's happening, man? <laughs> what about, what is the best way, if the person has uh, the ability to stop the evil, but he doesn't have the knowledge, it doesn't even if the result of this stopping the evil 
is Fantastic. Okay, so over here, we'll look at two types of knowledge that are needed. One, which is a knowledge by necessity. So for example, every Muslim knows that you have to pray. Every Muslim knows that killing is haram. Every Muslim knows that zina is haram, right? These are things that regardless of how practicing or non-practicing you are, everyone knows about. So in, this, in those part situations, every Muslim can speak about that evil and can eradicate that evil because everyone knows about it. But then there are certain things that only a knowledgeable person will know about, right? So for example, the concept of like Miladun Nabi, right? Or the concept of, you know, celebrating other, other celebrations or, or something very detailed and minute. Only a person with knowledge will have detailed knowledge about that. So the average layman should not embark upon that because he doesn't have knowledge, even though he himself is certain of his position, right? But at that time, he should gain more knowledge, learn more, or perhaps get a person of knowledge and use them to eradicate that evil instead. Wallahu alam. Khair will conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika shadun la ilaha illa anta astaghfirka wa tubu ilaik.